Gentlemen, welcome back to Tom's Talmudish. I'm going to make two confessions. Number one, I didn't have enough time to prepare this Gemara properly, so I'm going to teach it to the best of my ability, which isn't very much. Number two, I don't understand this Gemara, <laughs> and I'm going to try very hard to make some sense out of it. Um, it's a very unusual piece of Gemara. It speaks about Moshe Rabbeinu. He's a person. It speaks about the Satan. He's an angel. And what does that mean? And then we hear about God. Oh, we're also going to hear about conversations that ensue between earth, the deep seas, and things like that. So I think it's very important for us to know that every word of the Gemara is true. And every word of the Gemara is accurate. And every word of the Gemara is meaningful. The question is, what exactly does it mean? And how will it speak to us? So firstly, to read silliness into the Gemara is silly. There's a lot of euphemism. There's a lot of metaphor. There's a lot of parable, as we will see. The Omar Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Tafpeites Ahmed Aleph. In the previous section, the Gemara talked about Moshe Rabbeinu's locking horns with the angels and successfully getting them to back down. In fact, they were not very pleased to see Moshe Rabbeinu, and then they kind of got used to it. Uh, they were quite comfortable with his presence. They even gave him gifts. Gifts are a sign of friendship. You're not paying somebody for doing a job. You're giving him a gift. The Gemara says, that if somebody wouldn't have done something nice for you, you wouldn't give a gift. So a gift means that there's good feelings. And everything's fine. Moshe Rabbeinu remained in the heavens for 40 days and 40 nights. What does it mean to be in the heavens? I don't know. I've never been to heaven. I don't think I want to find out. Moshe Rabbeinu was there terrestrially, or at least he went up a mountain. That doesn't mean his physics melted away. Does it mean he entered into a different dimension? Probably. Or something like that. We know that the body is there, but the bodily needs are not. He doesn't eat for 40 days, or drink, or sleep or sit or recline or get some fresh air. He absorbs the essence of the Torah. 
At the end of these 40 days, God says to Moshe Rabbeinu, you are no longer a wanted guest. You are here by virtue of the people you represent. But they've turned their backs on me. They're worshipping a golden calf. So, Lech Reid, you need to go down. Your greatness, the exalted reality you've experienced, is only in their merit. And they are no longer meritorious. So you go down. Kishichis Amcha. And Moshe goes down. And that's a story in and of itself. A story and a half there. But Rabbi Shua ben Levi teaches us, Bishah Shayorad Moshe, at the time that Moshe Rabbeinu descended. And this is very meaningful. What we are going to study today is narrating some kind of events that took place after Moshe Rabbeinu left the heavenly reality of those 40 days and nights. When Moshe Rabbeinu leaves, from before God, then God is everywhere, so what does that mean that you leave from before God? It's obviously euphemism. So the Gemara says... on the screen over here, Jake. Oh, there it is. You know, you could get a Gemara and follow along inside. You don't want to. You could get a book. You're the only one here. You just, you're like a... I, I, I can't concentrate on the book. I see. All right, okay, okay. So I, I'm going to look at the camera, though. Hello, Shonil. And by the way, anybody else out there who has questions, please feel free to ask your questions. I do take a look at the at the live chat on occasion. And of course, Reb Jake, you're here in person. You're also invited to ask any questions you have. If you can't get my attention, just throw something at me. You know. So at this time when, so to speak, Satan, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu descends, Bo Satan, Satan comes. You think he has horns, Satan? You think he has horns? No, I don't think he has horns either. <laughs> you think he has a pitchfork? Red skin or blue skin? How do you, how do you uh, envision the Satan? That's a silly question. He doesn't have skin. Satan is a concept. A real concept. People say, oh, it's conceptual. You don't believe in the Torah. Torah says Satan. On the contrary, when you literalize Satan, then you don't believe in the Torah's ideas properly. Because you cannot literalize things which are true metaphorical concepts. <laughs> it's like saying that uh, idea is a very lofty idea. So, you know, if you get on a ladder, you might be able to understand it a little better. Now, if you get into an airplane, now you're talking. Well, it's a very deep idea. So, get me my shovel and we'll start digging. Maybe we'll go into a valley and then we'll be able to grasp the idea. It's a, it's a silly concept. <laughs> There's a story they tell that there was a city in Ukraine. It was called Dvinsk. I think it's in Ukraine. And it had two very famous rabbinic personalities. It was the Hasidic Rav, it was called the Rogachov Goen. It was a physically 
short man of a giant stature, but physically short. And then there was Rav Meir Simcha HaKohen, better known today by his magnum opus on the works of Maimonides, Rambam, as Or Sameach. And he was a tall man. He's a very handsome man. And he's an orator. They were both tremendous Talmud Chachamim, but uh, the Ergachev was off the charts. Probably the most brilliant Torah mind of the 20th century. So there was an argument in Shul one day between the people. Who's, which, who is a, a greater rov? Who is a greater rabbi? By greater in Yiddish means like, you know, who's bigger? So there was a little boy and he saw, you know, the adults arguing. He said, I don't understand you. Like, the mayor Simcha is about six feet high. And the Dagachar clocks in at about like, you know, four foot 11. What's, what, what's, there's no contest here. So they said, no, 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 no. We're not talking about physical height. We're talking about stature. We're talking about scholarship. We're talking about intuition. He said, ah, here you go now giving me stories. And I heard what you said. You said bigger. Now you're, now you're taking it away from the literal meaning. So when we learn a Gemara like this, and we say Satan, and he doesn't have a pitchfork, he doesn't have a red skin, this is not departing from the true meaning. This is where the true meaning begins, because literalizing things which are not literal is as dumb as that book called Emilia Bedelia, where she throws a clock out the window because she wanted to see time fly. It doesn't work. So Satan comes before Hashem. And there is a thing called Satan. There's a lot of different observances within the milieu of Judaism where we do things to confuse the Satan or to get around the Satan. It's a, it's a real thing. It, it impacts Allah. If it doesn't impact Allah, then it has to be a real thing. It doesn't mean it's a tangible thing. It doesn't mean it has nuclear physics. So the Satan comes, Omar Lefanov, and he says before him, Master of the universe. Torah, Hechani. Um, what happened to the Torah? The Torah used to be in heaven. Where is the Torah now? Omar Loi, so God says to him, Oh, Nesatiha Laaretz, I gave it onto earth. I gave it onto earth. So Sutton's going to go now on a search and um, retrieve mission. So what? He gave the Torah away on earth? Now, now remember, Satan represents this spiritual force. Call him an angel for lack of better terminology. It has nothing to do with Hollywood's imagery of, of people with wings or halos. Those aren't angels. Those are people with wings and halos. <laughs> that's, that's not, an angel is a, is a, it's a, it's a spiritual force. When you talk about nuclear physics, you want to know what color... Uh, what it smells like, you want to know what it, what it feels like, it's, it's nuclear physics. It's, you're not talking about things on a literal level. So the concept of satan represents things, the word satan literally means obstruction. That which serves to disable or to create dysfunction. In fact, in Torah Hebrew, the word lesatan, which I suppose would be translated in English as to satanize, means to get in somebody's way, to confound, to confuse, to disorient. It's like, you're confusing me. I'm not able to focus. Go away. 
you're, you're getting in the way of me being able to try to do what I have to do. So the Satan represents this energy, a negative energy, which seeks to demoralize, discredit, to create, to sow confusion, to disable. So that we shouldn't be able to do what we have to do. Of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates the Satan like he creates everything else. And in the end, the Satan only serves a purpose. But once the Satan's purpose is served, then the Satan outlives its usefulness. In case you're wondering, the Satan's days are numbered. Mashiach is going to come very soon. And when Mashiach comes, it is written, Shachte HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to slaughter it. Doesn't mean that he has a windpipe or a gullet or there's going to be a bloody job. It's a euphemism. It'll be vaporized. That negativity will no longer be. Right now, in the present day and age, we have all kinds of things which are stumbling blocks. Things which disable us from achieving our purposes and we have to overcome them. It might be inner fear. It might be temerity. It might be a, a, a lack of courage or an inability to focus. Some people don't have the stamina. Some people don't have self-esteem. They're, they don't believe that they're actually able. All of these things are, that's your satan. That's the thing that Hashem gave for you to overcome. <laughs> you know, there's a, a very credible opinion in Torah of the Rishonim that when Yaakov Avinu wrestles with an angel he's wrestling with his inner demons there isn't an actual phantom dark guy and, and Yaakov wants to run away from Esau he doesn't want to confront him and he's forced to confront him and once he confronts him and once he deals with this then amazing things happen so w- whenever we find ourselves challenged we have to know that the challenge is there to make us stronger, it's there to make us better. That is, if we overcome the challenge, not succumb to it. So this Satan, this obstructing force comes to Hashem and he says, so where's the Torah? Hashem says, Now, the Maharal of Prague explains this in a very interesting way. He says, why is it Bishah at the time when Moshe Rabbeinu left the heavens, proverbially speaking, I mean, which was also literal because he didn't see him for 40 days and 40 nights, why is it that only after Moshe Rabbeinu leaves the heavens, that's when he says, where's the Torah? Didn't God give the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai 40 days earlier? So he says, there's even a bigger question. And the section of Gemara just before this one we talked about the angels kind of experiencing a turnover where they were opposed to Moshe and then they embraced Moshe and they gave him gifts. And the Satan, who is also, by the way, the Malach Amavas, he has various forms and iterations and expressions. So the Satan also gives a gift to Moshe Rabbeinu. That's the incense. We talked about that. So, what do you mean? He's asking where the Torah is. Does he know where the Torah is? Maral says an amazing thing. He says, when Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah, that was fine. I got the Torah. 
and, and um, the Torah was still in heaven because Moshe Rabbeinu was in heaven. When Moshe Rabbeinu left the heavens, he left with the Torah. What does it mean that the Torah is not in heaven? It means that the halacha, which is God's will, is decided on earth, not in the heavens. There's a famous Talmudic story which I've shared with you, my audience, many times. And it's about, uh, it's about an argument between Rabbi Elazar HaGadol and between the sages. This is the, the Rebbe of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Lazar ben Hokinus. So Rabbi Lazar, he was of, of the opinion that a, a certain apparatus called a Tanur Shalach Noi should have a particular status, a designation, insofar as ritual purity and impurity is concerned. And the sages didn't agree with him. And they argued and argued. And then at some point, the halacha says, when Sanhedrin is in session, there's a consensus. And we follow the majority. And Rebbe Elizabeth Herkinus was out, was outvoted. It's not the halacha. Torah ideas, elu ve'elu, divri elikim chayim, it's all divine ideas, but that's not the halacha. And he became very upset. And in his quest for the truth, he was so certain that his understanding was the accurate, appropriate understanding. He said, I- I'll prove to you that I'm right. Heaven will prove that I'm right. And all sorts of strange things started to happen. The walls started collapsing and the heavens started opening. A lot of strange things. And the sages were unfazed. They said the Torah is not in the heavens. The Torah is Torah Loba Shemaim. The Torah is here on earth. So the way we rule the halacha, that's the halacha. And when the halacha is ruled here on earth, that becomes the reality on earth, but more powerfully in heaven. After all, it's we, the Jewish people, who make the calendar. We invite God to come to be with us on a day like Yom Kippur. It's we who decide when God's mitzvah of us either fasting or eating matzah, sounding the shofar, or eating in the sukkah becomes a meaningful thing. It's as if God said, I gave you the keys. And as long as you do this with integrity, and as long as you do this with sincerity, then kol masha talmid vasik osid lechadash, anything which an upright, sincere, and, and a properly minded disciple will be able to discover in Torah, it's discovering what always was, like figuring out a mathematical thesis. You didn't create something new, you just figured something out that's already been given to Moshe Misina. Here's, here's a, a more literal story of what this might mean, how we can understand the concept of Torah Loba Shomayimi. So, so I, I heard the story that there was a, a woman whose husband disappeared and, and she was kind of stuck because the halacha tells us that if a woman is married, then She's married, and the only way she becomes unmarried is either through a bill of divorce, a get, or the husband's demise. Well, there was no bill of divorce, but the husband disappeared, and what do you do? And this is not uh, today's day and age, where it's very hard to hide, and there's private eyes and all kinds of other things. Technology of those days, you disappeared. So this woman came to the very prominent rabbis of the day, rabbis in the Ukraine, in the white Russia, Lithuania. And there was uh, letters going back and forth between the most brilliant and erudite minds 
Torah sages of the time. So Rabbi Levi Yitzchak writes a letter from Bardichev, which is in Ukraine, to the Alter Rebbe, who's in Lyazna, which is white Russia. And he says, I know he's dead. So we should permit her to get married. It's not fair. This poor woman is alone, and she doesn't want to be alone. The Alter Rebbe says, I also know, he wrote him back, I also know he's dead. But Torah lo bashamayimi. In other words, you could have Torah sages who are so righteous, who are so pious, who are so devoted to Hashem that they actually have higher consciousness. I guess what you would call in English spiritual clairvoyance. And they could know things. And we have many stories like this. Our Rebbe knew things that were impossible to know. And yet, <laughs> that's not the way the halacha gets ruled. The halacha has to be ruled the way the human mind understands it. Torah is not in the heavens, but rather on earth. And the Torah has to, there's a framework. So up until Moshe Rabbeinu left the heavens, the Torah was still in heaven. Because Moshe Rabbeinu is a heavenly neshama, not an earthly neshama. <laughs> Here's another beautiful story. I believe this is with the Rebbe Tzedek. So he tells the story that there was a fellow who behaved badly. Some people behave badly. And um, the story was, if I don't make a mistake, that he had a tenant who wasn't paying his rent. Took him to court, tried to get the money, nothing doing. He wanted to have him evicted. And the man ran to the local rabbi, a rebbe, and he said, the man's a victim. He said, the rebbe calls him in. He says, how do you evict a fellow Jew like this? You can't do that. He said, what do you want? i got to get my money. He said, Hashem will give you money. Hashem will give you parnasa. You forgive, forgive it. Forgive the loan. Just do a hard reset, and you'll see it'll work out. And the man does it once. It happens a second time. And by the third time, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. This guy keeps promising me to pay. i I, I, I got to pay my mortgage. He says, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. And so he evicts him. Evicts his whole family. Throws his family in the street. And the story goes that when this, this man came to heaven, they, they, you know, they went through his do's and don'ts, as they say. And um, he's a fine fellow, but this is a terrible story. He threw a family in the street, and they suffered terribly. And, and the prosecuting angels couldn't wait to get their hands on this guy. And he's got up to defend himself and he says, you have no idea what it means to live in the real world. You have no idea what it means not to get paid. You have no idea what money means. So you sit in heaven and you tell stories. It's not fair. If you would know what money is. So there's this whole kerfuffle and a whole story in heaven. And the Tzemach Tzedek is telling the story. And the Tzemach Tzedek is telling the story and he says, and he says, so in heaven now they're sitting and they would want to know how is it on earth? Then Tzemach Tzedek says to the assembled, I, I would think that the angel doesn't know. The angels don't know what money is. And they have no right to judge this person harshly. The person, you know, he, he forgave this person twice, but this, this man in the end didn't have the largesse to just keep looking the other way. And Tzemach Tzedek said, I say he's right. And what do you say? And everybody agrees, there's an agreement. And as the story goes, everybody felt that Tzemach Tzedek was paskaling the halacha of, for this fellow, defending this fellow on high. And this is the idea of Torah Lova Shemaim. Torah can't be in heaven, Torah is on earth. So as long as Moshe Rabbeinu is in heaven, he's not eating, he's not sleeping, he's not drinking. Satan's fine, the angels are fine, they're not really happy with having this mortal amongst them. But the mortal isn't really acting mortal-like. He's kind of acting angel-like, so it's okay. And then he goes down. 
And where does he go? <laughs> he goes to a people who are worshipping an idol, a golden calf, saying, this is your God. To a people who lynched a pious man named Khur, who tried to stop this out-of-control, idolatrous mob. And there was licentiousness too. And Moshe Rabbeinu went down for that. And by the way, smashed the Luchot. So the, the, the Sultan says, uh, eh, where's the Torah? Some of our commentaries say, what, do you mean, what, do you mean, what is he asking? He doesn't know what a Torah is. So they say, you know what? The question was the Sultan's way of casting aspersion on the Jewish people. Now, till now, the Sultan was busy. He was, yeah. So the Teisva says, why didn't the Sultan say something before? <laughs> why, why didn't the Sultan... Uh, what didn't he know? Why didn't he wake up 40 days ago? Why did he only say now? So the Teisva says, Satan well, He didn't know about Why is he asking now? And Teisva asks, he says, from the Medrash we can understand, that at the time when Torah was, give, was being given, Hashem made the Satan very busy. And he couldn't uh, listen. He, could, he, he couldn't function. He was too busy dealing with his own confusion and demoralization. And he couldn't worry about confusing and demoralizing others. Incidentally, in Hayom Yom, it says that if you look at this Tosfos and you think about it, each and every year on Shavuot, we are told the same thing happens all over again. God gives us the Torah. So the usual suspects who will come and try to stop you from developing in your Yiddishkeit, they don't have ability because on Matan Torah, they, those forces, those spirits, those, those consciousnesses are confused and demoralized themselves. So it's really a very powerful time to recommit yourself to study Torah, to observe Torah, and to live in the spirit of the Torah. So at any rate, so whether you want to say that the Sutton didn't know, which is a little hard because he gave a gift, or, or, or didn't really realize, but Moshe went down and the Torah is down, and the Sutton, as some of the Mepharshim say, he was busy creating a smokescreen so they should make an, an eagle, an, a golden calf. Now that he got that, succeeded at that, he went back up, as Moses comes down, to clean up the mess that he created. And the Sutton continues to make trouble, makes trouble on earth, he demoralized and confused the Jewish people and got them to sin in the most grievous of ways. And then he went back to God. He said, God, where's the Torah? This is the Satan doing what he does best. So Hashem says to the Satan, Omar Loi, Hashem says to him, Nasati Alaretz, I gave it to the earth. Sorry, I don't have the Torah. Why, why are you asking where the Torah is? So the Satan goes off looking for the Torah. The Satan comes to the material reality. The Marsha says he's speaking to the alter ego, the spiritual consciousness that fuels and powers material reality and nuclear physics. And he, he speaks to this spirit, whatever that means. Amr Allah, he says to him, so where is the Torah? I mean, God said he gave it to earth. So, so where is the Torah, he says. Amra, loi, so the spirit of the earth, or earth responds and says, Elikim haven darkai. God knows his way. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, 
I don't know what Torah is. In other words, he's, he's like, I, I don't know what you want from me. I, 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 I'm not able to help you. What does this mean? What does it mean that, that he comes to earth and he says, Shem says, I put the, gave the Torah to the earth, and he comes to the earth, and the earth says, I don't know. I don't know. God, God, God knows where the Torah is. I, I don't know. So the truth is that the material reality and the spiritual reality are, are they're different realms, and the twain shall never meet. And whilst it is not illogical for a person to overcome challenges, difficulty, you know, travail, and do the right thing, do what Hashem wants, it's, it's difficult to understand how that spirituality could be found in the frame of the physical and material. So, for example, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and, and Yaakov, Avinu, Jacob, and Rachel, and Leah, and Bill, and Zilpah, and all the Shvatim, they're very holy people, very righteous people. And they overcame their own inner demons and challenges and did the right thing. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's like uh, you know, being in an obstacle course and you're being tested. Can we get you to lose your temper? Can we get you to be confused? Can we get you to drop your guard? Can we get you to behave inappropriately? Be overly selfish or animalistic? And you, you, you're struggling with it. So that's how it was for Avram, for Yitzchak, Yaakov. But they didn't make anything physical holy. Why? Because, uh, because they couldn't. That's why. So it says Yaakov Avinu used sticks. Some kind of sticks or branches to do what we do when we put on tefillin today. But he didn't put the sticks into a little velvet bag when he finished or kissed them. He just threw them away. Because, because the sticks did not have any intrinsic value in and of themselves. It was a mechanism through which Yaakov was able to direct spiritual energy a certain way. And whatever we're supposed to be doing or is happening or putting on tefillin, Yaakov was able to co-opt this energy and harness it or channel it in a particular direction. But the things he used to channel them did not remain sacred. This is a famous concept which is discussed at great length in the teachings of Hasidus, especially in the literature from the Rebbe on, on the subject of uh, Shavuot and Matan Torah, that there's this medrash that talks about an upper, an upper uh, city or country and, a, and a, lower, a lower kingdom, and the upper kingdom and the lower kingdom could not do any business, and there could be no exchanges between them. They remained entirely separate. It's like, you know, there was like a, a wall. You couldn't go from one to the other. And then the decree is rescinded, and commerce begins, and the people from the upper kingdom are visiting the lower kingdom and vice versa. That, that's what the Medrash says. What, what, what does that mean? Upper kingdom, lower kingdom. Who are we doing business with? What, 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 what kind of parable is this? And in a word, I'm, I'm, it's a gross oversimplification, but in a word, the, the idea that the physical could actually become sacred, that something material could become holy, simply didn't exist. This is a chiddush, a novelty of after Matan Torah, after the Torah was given. And after the Torah is given, we have not only a spirit, but also, if you will, a body. The body of holiness. Whether it's an artifact like a Sefer Torah, a mezuzah, a parat film, which are called Tashmishe Kedusha, articles of holiness, artifacts of, that, have, that are sacred in and of themselves. Whether it's the, 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 the physical ground 
that's consecrated as a synagogue, for example, that it becomes physically holy. And there's halachas about this, whether it's wood that's used for an Aron Kodesh, a holy ark, or, or for the reading table, it, it becomes physically transformed. So Torah comes to earth and he says, so <laughs> you house holiness now? So has holiness now become like a, another dimension, like the, you know, like the, the ether, the, the fifth dimension? You got, you know, you got the solid and the liquid, the energy and the gas. Is, is there now a quintessence? Now, if you, is, is, is physicality become modified? Has, have the laws of physics changed? That you now can house holiness? <laughs> that you now can allow godliness to be revealed? So, so what does earth respond? Don't, don't look at me. I don't, I don't understand how something physical can be holy. Talk to God. God, God is, if God says something physical could be holy, then God says something physical could be holy. <laughs> it's an interesting like, concept, just to help illustrate this. So we have this idea, which is, which is based on a verse in the Torah in Parshas Ekev, that it says, Loy adam, A person doesn't only live by virtue of the bread, but rather the, so to speak, the, what issues forth from God's mouth. Now, this is understood by the Arizal in the Lurianic writings to allude to the concept of sparks of holiness. And he says that everything has like sparks of holiness. Just, just as we can understand what nuclear physics did, everything has energy in it. Sparks of holiness. And when you utilize something physical, something tangible and technical for a holy purpose, you free the holiness that's trapped in it, and you kind of send it heavenward. By the way, this is the origin of the Lurianic concept of Tikkun Olam, which has absolutely nothing to do with mud huts or, 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 or feeding the homeless per se. It's, it's, it's not, it is not a description of Western mores or the, the values of today's woke culture, tikkun olam, fix the world. It doesn't even mean fix, by the way, because it's Aramaic. It, means, it doesn't mean fix like as it broke it. It means to, to modify. Like, uh, like in English, a woman putting on makeup says she's going to fix her face. You know, the face is not broken. It's going to tweak it, fine-tune it, make it, make it perfect. You know, the, the piano is not broken, but you need to be tuned. So tikkun means we have to fine-tune the world. And the way we fine-tune the world is by using physical objects for holy purposes. So when you take food, which is kosher. By the way, that's the meaning in Hebrew of mutar. It's untied. It's not anchored. It's not kind of tied down. And you utilize it for a holy purpose, so then you elevate it. You elevate the sparks, and you're making the world. You're tweaking or fine-tuning the synergy of the world. I mean, of course, being kind to people is very nice, and giving tzedakah is to be godlike, which is the fulfillment of a mitzvah in and of itself. But, but that's, it's, it's, not, it's not like a Western value idea, which you know, Western faith systems took monotheism, took whatever pagan systems they had before, sprinkled some monotheism on it, and then they called it uh, a, new, a new monotheistic religion. So we have, uh, we have people who take uh, their, their, their own values, their own value system, which are either Greek or Roman in origin, and, and, um, and they sprinkle some, you know, some, some Jewish-looking stuff or Jewish-looking sounding things over it, and it becomes Judaism. It's not Judaism. Judaism is Torah. If, it, if it's against the halacha, it's not Judaism. And it, by the way, it's not what God wants. How do I know what God wants? It's a great question. I, I don't know. It's not me as an individual. I'm learning Hashem's Torah. This is what we believe. 
So when we learn Hashem's Torah, when we embody Hashem's Torah, when we act out Hashem's Torah, then we are fine-tuning our world. So the, here's the question. So if somebody eats an, a fine dinner, like it says in Tanya, and then he uses the food in order to serve Hashem, it's wonderful. So then he has elevated the sparks because he's used the food to do something good. What if he used the food to go and take care of somebody who's sick or homeless? It's very nice, beautiful. He acted tzedakah. So what happens if you eat pork? Food that's not kosher, a cheeseburger. It's totally not kosher. But I'm doing good things with the energy. I'm, I'm learning Torah afterwards. And don't tell me, oh, you can't learn Torah. The guy says, I'm learning Torah. I was hungry. Now I ate it. Now I'm feeling good. Now I'm learning Torah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing acts of kindness. Am I elevating the world? And we'll say, well, no. No, because it's not kosher. I say, Wait, what do you mean? But technically, I'm usually utilizing it for a holy purpose. So the Rebbe says in a letter to somebody to answer this question, he says, the very idea that you could take something physical and, and utilize it for a purpose and this releases sparks, that very idea is a godly idea. It's not actually something that makes sense. It's not a technical thing. It doesn't fit into the frame of physical existence so that you should be able to say, oh sure, eat whatever you want, do as you please, but as long as you utilize it afterwards for a holy purpose, it's okay. This is, it is so because Torah says it's so. So Hashem says the Torah is on earth. And, and the Satan comes and he says, tell me, you have the Torah? Or says, I, I don't know. I don't understand this. I, it's not like a part of, I could talk to you about nuclear physics. I could talk to you about, about my crass existence. I can't talk to you about, about how it is that Torah should exist within me or that, that, that the physical reality of the world is now able to house the holiness of Torah? <laughs> I, I, I can't answer that question. I, I don't know what to say. I don't have the Torah. I don't grasp the Torah. You know, the Torah is Rechava. It's, 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 it's too broad, too wide, so to speak, as the Mepharshim said. All right. You know, God said it's on the earth, and the earth uh, is pleading the fifth. It doesn't know what he's talking about, you know. So he went to the sea, went to the sea. Omar Loi, the sea said, any muddy? I don't know what to tell you. I don't have the Torah. So what does this mean? What's the difference between the earth and the sea? Some of the Mepharshim struggle to suggest that there's, the sea is considered to be like a, a little bit of a less dense, less material reality. So I, I don't know, but I'm, this is like this is what I'm thinking. There's, there's a, in, in the writings of, of Kabbalah, as they're elucidated in Bechsidus, there there's like two worlds. There's, the, there's a, a world which is called Alma de Isgalia and a world which is called Alma de Iskasia. The world, the revealed and the concealed. Isgalia is Aramaic for gilui, for revelation, revelatory, seen, obvious, overt. And, and Iskasia, is like the Hebrew word mechuse, kisui, covered over. So when you look at the sea, what do you see? That's not a pun intended. You see ocean. But there's thousands, maybe millions of species living beneath the sea. And we are told, kol ma whatever exists, in, on dry land, there's also there in sea. And in fact, it wasn't until the 1950s that we mapped out the mountain ranges beneath the sea. And we, we know today that 
some of the mountain ranges in the midst of the Atlantic are significantly higher than Mount McKinley. So there's a typography beneath the sea which is as dramatic as the typography above the sea and even more so. I think the tallest mountain, beneath sea mountain, is three times the height of Mount McKinley, the Himalayas. So what's the pshat? What, is it, what, what, what does it mean? I mean? I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the sea, but you don't see it. You don't see it. O- the, the ocean covers everything. Every, every once in a while, they have a big discovery. They discover a, a sunken ship, a treasure. And these are like needles in a haystack. It's an enormous expanse. Three quarters of the world is covered by ocean. And then there's the dry land. You, you, see, you see, you see typography, you see creatures, animals, vegetation, you see it. So there's the, the, the seeing or the, the being, and there's an independent entity, rather than being kind of covered over or saturated or concealed, represents on a spiritual level creatures who feel their own existence. They don't feel themselves bathed or immersed in higher consciousness or divinity. They feel themselves. They're aware of themselves. They have self-awareness. But then there's a higher level where there is no self-awareness, where, where the self is entirely concealed. All these creatures are aware of the consciousness, aware of God. And there's a lot to say about that. But this spiritual reality is mirrored by the physical reality on planet Earth, where we have dry land and then huge expanses of the planet, which are covered by water. And the water, or the deep seas, it, it has a certain element of, uh, of, of a, higher, a higher kind of existence. So, for example, a mikvah, which is a source of purity, is only achieved in the water, in a natural body of water, a water where human intervention, the human hand hasn't intervened in creating that gathering. In fact, the oceans are the cold, the mikvah hamoyim, it's the giant, the world's giant mikvah. Mikvah means a gathering of water. And the bruyim shabayam, it says, the sea creatures, enum chaytzitzin, they don't create a barrier between the person immersing and between the waters itself. They're actually an extension or a part of the waters. It says that if a neshama of a righteous person has to be embodied in some kind of animal reality to create a tikkun, to fix something from, from its terrestrial journey prior, so tzaddikim, it says, go into fish. And there's a big thing about eating fish on Shabbat because it's a higher consciousness reality. I, I gave a whole series of classes on that. You can talk all about the idea of fish. So, so the, the, the sea is a, like, represents like a, deeper, a deeper spiritual reality. So I don't know if this is what, I mean, it's all not physical. It's not, it's not speaking to, to, to water or, or to soil. It's like a little bit, like a higher level of, of the physical reality. So the Sutton comes and says, okay, so, so that, is that where the Torah is? This higher level of consciousness? That's his question. And the, and the sea says, no. Any muddy. It's not, I don't, I don't have it. Uh, Matthew is asking that any self-awareness that exists is ultimately really Hashem. Yeah, but the problem is that self and Hashem are a bit of a contradiction. And the moment you feel self, you're feeling yourself outside of Hashem. Think of it this way. 
The day that your, a part of your body makes a declaration of independence and informs you that he is no longer part of your body and has no intention of playing along with what you want, uh, you have a big problem. That's a limb that is no longer alive. So when a person feels that he or she is extant outside of God, we're in big trouble. Well, we are in trouble. <laughs> but Hashem put us into this trouble. So it's for a good purpose, for a good cause, as they say. So now we, the, the Satan is not happy because the Satan is getting the runaround. So Halach Eitzel Tahim, he goes to the depths, to the concealed depths. I don't even know what this means. The core of, of a, almost like a, like, a, like a higher kind of material reality. Some say it means Gehenna, where there is a cleansing for souls that got soiled and besmirched through material engagement. And he says, uh, so you have the Torah? And Tim says, no, NB. I don't, I don't have that either. Shnemar, Tahoim Omar, Loi B. Loi B. So we have a situation here. The, the, the depths are saying it's, uh, I don't have it. Yam Omar, any muddy. And everybody seems to be pleading the fifth there. Everybody says it's not us. And he quotes a number of verses over here. He says, Avdainu moves amru ba'aznenu shomainu shoma. So we, we heard that the Torah was given. <laughs> like we all, we all know this happened. So I don't know what the Torah is, but it was given on earth. We got a problem here. And Sutton wants to create this confusion. He wants to demoralize, disable create dysfunction and he's not succeeding because he can't get a straight answer. So, the Sultan comes back to God, proverbially speaking, and he says, Master of the Universe, listen, correct, and is mentioning that the fish never leave their own environment and their environment is where they can live. That is correct. Yes. So he says, I've been on a mission. I searched everywhere. I can't find the Torah. Nobody's fessing up. They're all saying, what does Torah have to do with us? So Hashem says to the Satan, Aha. so they don't have the Torah. They're all claiming that they are not in possession. Leich Eitzel Ben Amram. Go to Ben Amram. <laughs> Who's Ben Amram? Ben Amram is Moshe. And a beautiful thing about Moshe, exquisite thing about Moshe, is that he was the most perfect specimen of humanity. But the thing that he had better than anybody else was humility. He was entirely self-effacing. It doesn't mean he didn't know his own virtues. It doesn't mean he didn't know how special he was. But as the Rebbe explained many times, Moshe Rabbeinu said, whatever unique things I've been able to accomplish was because I was given unique opportunities. Had somebody else been given those same opportunities, surely they could have done as well or even better. And when he would meet a person, Moshe Rabbeinu would think to himself, had I walked a mile in that person's shoes, who knows if I'd be any better? By the way, who knows? Forget Moshe Rabbeinu. 
say for me and you? We judge other people and we look down at other people and we're harsh to other people. How do you know? How do you know what that person's circumstances were? How do you know what kind of inner demons that person struggles with? How do you know what kind of difficulties that person may have encountered in his youth? How do you know? How do you know you're any better? So, well, I'm better. This person does A and B, C, and I don't do any of that. This, that may be true. But, but you would be in that position. You might be doing uh, much worse. You might be doing things that are terrible. And it could be. So Moshe was humble. Now, we know there were two sages. This is kind of based on the Maharal of Prague. There were two sages who did not call themselves by name. And they are Ben Azai and Ben Zoma. By the way, both the names are Shimon. Shimon is a very popular Talmudic name. So Shimon ben Azai, Shimon ben Zoma, they never called themselves Shimon. They called themselves by the father's name. Uh, my father's son. And we understand this to be a supreme act of self-effacement. And when the Satan is looking to do in Maisha Rabbeinu, he's trying to focus negative energy on the Jewish people for getting the Torah. So the Hashem says, go to Ben Amram. And he's, he's sending a message to the Satan because you'll soon see this is all about Moshe's humility. So that's why he's called Ben Amram here. So he's got to Ben Amram. So the Satan goes. And the Satan says, Halach hates Goes to Moshe. You know, the Maral says, your name identifies your markings, your qualities, your personality, your self. And Moshe didn't think of self. So he goes to Moshe, and he says to Moshe, That Torah that God gave you. So where, where is it? Where is it now? As if to say, the Torah God gave you, where is it now? Huh? Where are the Luchot? They're smashed. Where are the people who received the Torah at Harsinai? Oh, they were busy dancing on a golden calf, very nice. Yeah, so where is the Torah now? Like, like, where are you now? What's up with that now? He's casting aspersion. So, Omar Lai, Vechima Ani, Shanasan Liya, Kadesh Baruch Hotel, Moshe says, Where is the Torah? What do you think? I have the Torah? God gave me, Moshe, Moshe the Torah? <laughs> I don't have the Torah. I don't have the Torah. That's his answer. I don't have the Torah. So Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, <laughs> you got the Torah. You received the Torah. Badoyato, Rashi says, you have to read this bitmia with a wonder. Badoyato, a fabricator are you? You're making a fabrication of the truth. You're saying you didn't get the Torah. How could you say that? Omar Lefonov, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Rabbeinu Shalelum, Chamudo Gnuzo Yeshlecha. This is your hidden treasure. It's your hidden treasure. Sha'ata Mishtasheyaba Bechol Yoim. You, if, as if you, you, you toy with the Torah, like you're, you're, you delight in the Torah. Ani Achzek Tova Laatzmi. What do you want me to say? I, it's my Torah. It's God's Torah. It's my Torah. 
What was I supposed to answer? God says, you fabricated. He asked you a question with the Torah. Answer the truth. My Shabbat said, how can I say that? How can I say it's my Torah? It's not my Torah. It's the Jewish people's Torah. I got it on behalf of the people. It's my Torah. It's mine. It's God's Torah. So God says to Mesha, since you minimized yourself, you made yourself small, so to speak. You didn't pat yourself in the back. He says, Tikra al Indeed, the Torah will have title for you. You will have title to the Torah. Shenemar, as the last of the prophets, Malachi said, Zichru Torah's Moshe Avdi, the Gomer. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant. How, how amazing is this? So let's think about this whole like, narrative here. The Satan comes to cast dispersion. He challenges Moshe Rabbeinu. So you got the Torah, eh? Who are we fooling? If, if you had the Torah and you got asked that question, you wouldn't say, yeah, I have the Torah. Yeah, what's it to you? God gave me the Torah. Despite having received the Torah, Moshe couldn't fathom that he should say, it's my Torah. And God gave it to him. He said, it's God's Torah. He's, he fabricates the truth. And because of that humility, which is totally counterintuitive, who would do that? Who would do that? Somebody, somebody sees a work of art. So who made this? And the artist is right there. Shh, doesn't say a word. It's beautiful. Who are we fooling? You see, I, 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 I made that. Who received the king's favor? Who received the queen, the queen's beneficence? No, that was me. Moshe said, I can't say that. I can't say that. You know, there's this marvelous little story in the Rambam. I think it's in Shemayna Prakim. The introduction to the Pirkei Avot. And he writes the story about a sage, a pious, pious person. And he said, he asked him, what was your happiest moment? And he said, my happiest moment was when I was on a trip, some kind of business trip. And I was, I was, I was poor. I was in the hold of the ship. In the, in the hold, in the bottom. And there was these wealthy, arrogant business people. And they were on the upper deck. And they came to throw out refuse. Who knows even what that is. And they dumped garbage on me. Like I wasn't even human in their eyes. They didn't even look at me. I didn't exist. And, and this pious man said to Rambam, and I didn't get angry. I said, this doesn't matter. It's what Hashem, where Hashem put me. It doesn't, doesn't bother me. And he said, when I was able to find that humility inside there that shouldn't bother me, that was my happiest moment. Like, like, that's the kind of spirit we're talking about here. And nobody I know is like this, my friends, just by the way. I don't know anybody like this. Of course not. This is Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest of tzaddikim. So here you have a satan, the satanic force is doing everything he could to force a confrontation, to try to discredit and bring a demerit to the Jewish people. And it becomes the catalyst 
for Moshe Rabbeinu receiving title of the Torah. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. It's like a beautiful narrative that, that somebody's out to get you. Something's out to get you. And you don't fall for the, for the bait. And because of it, Moshe is elevated. And Moshe, like, like, he seems to be saying a lie, but it's, it's ultimately not a lie because he says, do I really have the Torah, the secrets of the Torah, the mysteries of the Torah, the endless depth of the Torah? I really have it? Can I say, can any of us say we really understand the Torah? Can any of us say we really know the Torah? Can anybody say that? It's not really a lie. The Mepharshim say, Meshavit didn't lie. He said, he said, Meshavit said, I have the Torah? You've got to be kidding. It's Hashem's Torah. And Hashem says, that kind of humility has title to the Torah. So, the, we, we now move on to another little story. Another little story. And this story is, is about Moshe Rabbeinu. It's about Moshe Rabbeinu on high. And it's like we're going backwards now. So here we were 40 days later. Now we're going backwards. And Va'omar Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, Moshe ascended the heavens. He's literally, this translates as tying crowns to the letters. Obviously, it's a euphemism. What do you think? Letters like gigantic olive bases bouncing around heaven. What do you think? This is Sesame Street. What does it mean, kosher kshorim? That's tying crowns. So we know that the Torah letters have these projectiles and crowns and markings. And Rabbi Akiva would be able to discern nouns of halacha, all kinds of deep, meaningful, profound insights from these proverbial crowns. So Moshe sees, I mean, this is like Hashem perfecting the Torah. The Torah is going to be given. He's like adding in the last nuance for the Torah that's going to be given. Keshek Shara means the, it's the things that allude to the depth. So Hashem is creating the hints, the codes for people like Rabbi Akiva to be able to unravel. He's encoding the deepest secrets, the final secrets in the Torah. And Moshe is just in awe. So Hashem turns around to Moshe Rabbeinu and he says, again, this is all euphemistic. So he says, uh, tell me, Moshe, Ain shalom bi'ircha. You don't greet people in your city. You don't like say hi, good day, shalom aleichem. <laughs> so Moshe says. He says, "Klum yesh eved shenosam shalom l'rabo." Do you have a uh, a servant who says, "Hey, how you doing, master?" Moshe says, "What? Who, who am I to speak before the presence of God?" Omar Loi, so God says to Moshe, what, what do you mean? You're supposed to help me. Miyad Omar Loi, Moshe says, 
Yes, yes, this is here where Moshe Rabbeinu says, may God's presence, may God's strength magnify, become greater through, through our activities. What, what's the point of the story? What, is, what does this mean? It's letters, tying crowns. and You're not going to say hello to me? <laughs> so the Mepharshim say that there's multiple ideas over here. Like Hashem uses this occasion to teach Moshe Rabbeinu a lesson. But here is the upshot. We just talked about Moshe Rabbeinu's humility. Humility is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It earns Moshe Rabbeinu a title of the Torah. But at the same time, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu comes and you stand before Hashem, when it's, then your job is to say shalom. Your job is to engage. Don't, don't stand there in the corner and be humble. Assume your role. And Hashem says to Moshe, I need your help. God needs Moshe's help. God needs any of our helps. God needs our mitzvah. That's how we should feel. A person could say, I'm humble. Well, my mitzvah, my tefillin, my tzedakah, what, what, what does God need that for? I'm so humble, I'm not doing any mitzvahs. I'm going to study Torah. Who cares? Who needs it? The answer is, Hashem says He needs it. So along with the story of the post-Sinai period, when Moshe Rabbeinu goes down, right here we kind of bring this other story up, which should have been mentioned earlier, because we're trying to create a counterweight. Because for all of humility's virtues, don't be too humble. You have to know how to assert yourself. You have to know that what you do, what you say, what you think, is meaningful before God. God says, you help me. You complete my Torah. You perfect my Torah. I'm going to say a chiddish, a novelty. I'm going to add something to Hashem's Torah. Yes, Hashem is perfecting His Torah and you must engage. And both are true. Tremendous humility. Tremendous self-effacement of Moshe along with the lesson that we have a power to transform reality, that we have to stand tall and proud when it comes to our Yiddishkeit, that we must know that what we do can and does make a world of difference. Anyway, that's uh, what I'm able to share from this piece of Gemara. I hope you found it somewhat uplifting, maybe even enjoyable. And I look back, I look forward to seeing you back as we continue to learn the sugya of Matan Torah and the fascinating narratives that revolve around the giving of the Torah to the Jewish people that we celebrate on Shavuot. And of course, as I'm uh, concluding, I'll mention that just as Hashem revealed Himself to all of us at Matan Torah, when Mashiach will come, we will once again experience the same kind of reality in a much deeper, much more powerful, and much more profound way. May it be b'meheira obi amenu speedily, and in our days, amen. Thank you so much for joining. Have a beautiful evening.